Well, uh, won't you turn with me to John chapter 3? John chapter 3, as we continue to go through the book of John together. And uh, we're going to read from verse 9 to verse 15. John chapter 3, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one descended into heaven except he descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But whoever believes in him, I have eternal life. Just so far in God's word. So we, we continue now in John chapter 3, and maybe just to give you some context in case you weren't here last week uh, about what we looked at. We, we started on John chapter 3, and obviously this is the, the chapter about being born again. Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, comes at night, probably because he's afraid of coming in the daytime because of all of the other Pharisees. He comes about to earnestly see Jesus. He, he sees there's something different about him, that surely he must be from God if he's doing the things he's doing. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he, he says, well, I, I know that he must be from God. And, and Jesus answers in a strange way. He looks at them and says, well, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, well, I'm born again? Uh, what do you mean by that? As I call back into my mother's womb and be born a second time. And Jesus explains to them, no, that, that's not what it's about. It's about being born of the Spirit. In order to be in God's kingdom, in order to be under his domain, in order to see him and be saved and receive eternal life, you need to be born of the Spirit. You need to be given new life by the Spirit of God. Otherwise, there's no way that you can attain the kingdom. Now, why Jesus interacts with them on this level is because, especially amongst the Pharisees and the Jews at that time, they were under the impression that the kingdom of God could be attained in many other ways. First and foremost, well, by their lineage. We're Jews. We're the people of Israel. We are the kingdom of God. Surely, I mean, it's just a matter of being born and being circumcised. Well, we know from John 1 that that's not the case. Those who have the right to become children of God are chosen by the will of God. Jesus is reminding this man that God's salvation, his people, well, first of all, is more than a geographical location. It's not about a matter of where you were born physically. It doesn't matter who your parents were. It doesn't matter what your genealogy is. If you are not born of the Spirit, well, you cannot see God. Secondly, he's addressing his legalism. His religiousness, if he wants to. But I don't like that word because we've muddied it. You know, in many Christian circles they will speak about the evils of religion. But we technically are a religion. So, are we evil ourselves? No. I don't want to quibble about that term, sorry. I just did quibble about it. So I'm sorry for quibbling about something I said I wouldn't quibble about. You can laugh, guys. Alright, alright. Uh, so the point is, you should address his legalism. 
Another way that a Pharisee might think they might see the kingdom of God is to restrict obedience to the law of God. If I can just keep this law, if I can do my best not to break it in any way, and not just not break the law, but not break all the other laws. Hello, dog. Sorry. You're right, you said. That's so nice. Alright, well, that was exciting. <laughs> Where was I? Being born again, that's right. So, uh, another way that the Pharisees thought that they could uh, get to heaven or get to the kingdom was to restrict obedience to the law. If they were able to obey the law of Moses in a strictest form, or if they even were to obey even all the laws they added onto that law to stop them from breaking that law, well then God would approve of them. God would say, well done my good and faithful servants. The problem, however, is they couldn't keep that law. As much as they keep the outside of the cup, the inside was so filthy. As much as they tried and they tried and they tried, well the law we will always break. Because we are human and we are sinful. And he's confronted by that in this passage because to be born from the Spirit means that you need to look at yourself and say that everything that you are needs to be changed and replaced. That's exactly what Jeremiah spoke about in Isaiah. That the problem that we have fundamentally is that our core. We don't just need a bit of cleanliness. We don't need just a bit of help. We don't need a bit of medicine. We need to be entirely remade in order to see the kingdom. We need a new birth. We need the heart of stone to be replaced with the heart of flesh. We need a miraculous transformation. And here Jesus confronts him with the reality of eternal life that can only be attained by the Spirit, and it includes a new birth, something that he alone can give. And what's even more shocking is that, well, the Spirit decides to whom he gives it. He's like the wind, he says. He goes wherever he wants. He does whatever he wants. You cannot control him. He's not someone that you bargain with. It's not something that you can buy. It's not something that you can earn in any way by any deed that you have done. It's something that sovereignly the Spirit decides. Now those are some shocking things to say to someone. Not just shocking to him, but shocking to us. And, and that's why when I started the subject last week, I told you that it's something that you, you need to think about. You need to turn over in your head. Because what Jesus is presenting to us, the way of salvation that he is bringing to us, is entirely foreign to our way of living. It's entirely foreign to our human experience. We earn things. You earn your wage when you work. And from very school level we're taught this. You do your work, you get your grade. You don't do your work, you fail. Correct? And now all of a sudden the gospel is being presented to us as something that you cannot earn. The kingdom of God, eternal life, is not something that you can buy. It's not something that you can work towards because your good deeds will ultimately never add up to enough. You need to be born again. And just as your first birth had nothing to do with you, so your second birth as well is entirely of the Spirit of God. That means He is in control. It is His choice that matters. And it is an entire change that you need in order to be acceptable for the kingdom. So that's what I talked about last week. Uh, 
this is just introductory notes. So Nicodemus, upon hearing these things, right, he says, well, how can these things be? It's a shocking thing for him to hear. It's the overturning of his worldview. It is the undermining of everything that he thought to be right. And Jesus' first answer, which we did look at last week as well, is, are you a teacher of Israel, but you don't understand this? He's almost shocked at him, like, how do you not get this? This is not something Jesus is inventing. This is not something that he just pulled out of his head. That's not just something that he made up. This is how it has always been. And I quoted to you last week the passages in the Old Testament that prove it. Salvation has always been about an entire change of person. The great thing about the New Covenant is that what they were looking forward to in the Messiah is that with him he would bring the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would dwell in men's hearts and that they would know God. Jesus says, you, you should have known this. Why do I have to teach it to you when you apparently know the scriptures so well? That's the problem, first of all, with some of our preconceptions. I told you, or at least I alluded to last week, that these doctrines that I'm talking about are, are difficult sometimes to accept. And when I first heard of them, I, well, didn't accept them. I rejected them. Because they're too difficult. They didn't agree with my preconceptions about God. They didn't agree with the way I viewed these things. Now, obviously, therein lies the problem, right? We all like to say, well, you know, the, the scriptures will mold us and change us, but they can't mold and change us if we're not willing to see it. If we're not willing to lay down our preconceptions and let the Word of God speak. The first way to grow and the first way to mature as a believer is to come to the Word of God and say, well, Lord, I might be wrong. Let me be wrong and you be right. Especially when you come to difficult doctrines like the one we're looking at today. To be born again of the Spirit means that it is all of God and none of us. Now we're going to talk about choice and believing in a, a second, but the first step is the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God will always, always offend human beings. Because we don't like God's sovereignty. We've never liked it. That's why we sin. That's why you continue to sin. The control of God or this universe or any other has always been a front to us for some reason. And so we rebel. We choose against it constantly. We balk against it. So much so that even when it comes to the matter of our salvation, we would rather believe that we had some effort in it. Something that we can do to get it. Because if we could just have that, well then we would have something to, to boast about. Something to pat ourselves on the back about. Even if it's simple as just making a choice. Or at least I made the choice. That's the, the cult that we have today. is the so-called cult of choice. Our choices are the most important thing to us, even if they're wrong. Freedom of opinion, or freedom of the world. We think our choices define our universe. We are masters of our faith, faith and captains of our lives. And we read the scriptures and we're told they're not. You're not the master of your destiny. God is. And that is a shocking statement for us to take in. Almost as shocking as the most of to Nicodemus. And so Jesus tries to explain these things further to him. 
<coughs> he says, and truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. For Jesus, this is a, a very experiential thing. Like I told you, it's not something he made up. Uh, it's not, well, technically, you could argue that he did, because he's God. So, of course, he made it up. He did it. He made up all things. As much as he made up all of this. But this is not something that hasn't been told to them. This is something that Jesus knows intimately, deeply, and not just him, but all who followed him. It's something they have witnessed and seen and known. What he's alluding to here is a way of knowing that the Spirit is at work within you. Now, we're going to talk about a lot of things today, and I don't want to confuse you. So I'm going to try to do these things in a, an orderly way. We have two things that seem to conflict at the very outset. We have the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of the Spirit and salvation. I mean, he's in full, total control. He will choose whom he will choose to be saved. He will open the eyes of those he chooses to open. And in the same passage, we have this statement, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, right? So you're with me there. So God chooses, but then those who believe also have eternal life. So God chooses and man chooses. You see the conundrum we have. Which one comes first? Well, the obvious answer is in our text already. It's God's choice that comes first. We do choose, we do believe, we do act. But our actions are as a response to what God has already done. If he had not given you his spirit, if you were not born again, you would not have believed. That's the point. I just need to make this point up front. Because if I try to explain it later, I feel like I'll just confuse you. So what he's talking about from the article of these verses that they've experienced it, he's talking about something that a believer can attest to. That when you were first saved, you did exercise belief, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you, you believe that he accepted you. And then later on as you learn and you read the scriptures, you begin to learn deeper and deeper truths. And one of those truths, first of all, is that your salvation is not of you. That you were so sinful, that you were so broken, you were so fallen, that you needed a miracle to save you. You needed an entire change of heart. And though we might balk at that at first, the more we reflect upon it, the more it reflects the true experience of a believer. This is Paul's experience in the Scriptures. Remember Paul, what he was before he was saved? He was a persecutor of the church, right? He hated the people of God, and he thought he was even doing God's law as he persecuted and killed others. And his testimony of himself, in 1 Timothy 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience and his love for those who were to believe in him. So the reason I quote that is an example. Paul, when he reflects on his salvation, he, he doesn't boast in his ability to earn it. He doesn't say he deserved it, but he rightly acknowledges I was the chief of sinners. 
I was a persecutor and a blasphemer. If God had not shown him mercy on the road of Damascus, had not shone a light around him and blinded him and spoken to him directly, he would not be saved. He would be condemned. He required direct divine intervention. Not something he could have earned or gotten there by himself. Your father's echoed constantly throughout his writings and throughout the scriptures. What Jesus alludes to is the experience that one has as a believer when they're confronted with the Holy Spirit that their heart says, yes, I was a sinner and I'm saved by grace. It's a testimony that he shares in us. One of the things that we often speak about as believers is as we mature and mature, and I think, how old am I now? So I'm trying to think now. 29? Almost. I look older because I have a mighty beard. But <laughs> I've been saved now for 15 years. And the more I get saved, the opposite happens to what I thought would happen. The more sinful I appear to myself. The worse I seem to get in my own sight. Now that doesn't mean I've committed worse sins after being saved than before I was saved. But it does mean that if the Holy Spirit has worked in my heart, I can testify fully that I was a sinner and the only way that I am saved is by the grace of the Spirit of God. As an experience of testimony, there's something that changes that we can testify to. And here's the shocking thing is many of the modern church cannot testify to this. We will hang our hope on our choice. Or we will speak of, of some emotional circumstances in which we are saved. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with emotion, but emotion needs to be based on truth. Experience needs to be validated by what the Word of God says. And if you cannot glory alone in the Spirit and in God for your salvation, if you still hold on to some nugget that you have done, well then you need to come back to the cross and understand the salvation is holy of God. The testimony that Nicodemus cannot accept is that which all Christians should feel. That we are utterly sinful and it requires the being born again of the Spirit to make us saved. And we should be able to testify that together. Truly, truly, I say to you, he says, these things are what every Christian knows in their heart. And they make more and more sense as we understand them deeper. He says that he carries on. Uh, I say to these people what we know and bear witness of what we have seen but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I told you heavenly things? Jesus told them, we'll try to explain to them earthly things. He starts to use earthly examples to explain the concept to them. He, he points to their birth and says it's like that. It's like being born again. Or it's like the wind, he's pointed to. And so Nicodemus doesn't seem to get it. He doesn't seem to understand. And if you can't understand even the earthly examples, you can't even understand how they fit into salvation, well, how will they understand their heavenly consequences? How will they understand the beauty and wonder of the gospel if you cannot grasp even their simplicity and how it relates to earthly things? Jesus is trying to say to him, and he's trying to actually reveal something in his heart. But if naturally you can't fathom these things, all the mortal heavenly things have to do with you. 
is you cannot even on an earthly level grasp it. Well, then the things of heaven are hidden. Uh, it's almost like a rebuke to him. It's a, it's a shame to him that, that you, you don't understand the things of eternal life. Because you cannot even understand how it relates to you in a simple way. That's the way I say that you've hidden yourself from the truth. You refuse to see it. You've been blinded. And you will not come to it. That's the way I've shown that his affections are wrong. His experience of the truth is not right. So I've shown that he hasn't been born again of the Holy Spirit. Because if he had been born again, well, he would understand these things. But again, what I, I told you last week, then Corinthians uh, Paul tells us that an actual person, the person left by himself, the person that God has not touched with his grace and love, will not understand the things of the Spirit. There's only one who is spiritual that can understand the things of the Spirit. That's why I told you this book that we have, this Bible, you can read it cover to cover as an unbeliever, and it can mean absolutely nothing to you. You can read it every day of your life, but it will be like any other book. But this book to us, to those who have received the Spirit of God and been born again, is the most precious thing in all the world. We recognize God's hand in it. We recognize this author as the Holy Spirit that resonates with our soul because the one who lives in us testifies to these things. An actual person, well, means nothing to them. I told you about my grandfather. He, until uh, the day he died, was a staunch, well, he was agnostic, just pretty much an atheist. And as much as I loved him, uh, he challenged me a lot. Which is good, actually, because it forced me to think through things. But he read the Bible cover to cover at least twice in his life. He wasn't saved. The words meant nothing to him. Brothers and sisters, earthly things and spiritual things, to the earthly, to the natural person, heavenly things are hidden. It requires the Spirit of God to open our hearts and our souls to understand, to see and to know. Without Him, well, these things are lifeless, and we find no joy in them. This is an important principle for us as Christians because it again hinges on the Spirit to lead and to guide. It hinges on Him to make this book come alive. I've often asked the question, and this is maybe an aside, uh, and I like to ask it because it, it always sort of makes people think, is, is why do you love the Word of God? Or why do you think it's so precious? And the usual answers are, are things like, well, because it's God's Word, right? Uh, I mean, because He gave it to us, uh, because it's written by the Holy Spirit, because it's infallible, or sorry, inerrant. Uh, you know, it has no error in it. And all those things are true, absolutely true. But can I tell you, that's not the reason why I love this book. You know why I love this book? Because in it are the words of Christ. It led me to Christ. It teaches me about God. It has given me the experience of salvation that I never had as an unbeliever. I love this book not because of the things I can project upon it, because everything it tells me about God resonates with the Spirit who lives in me. And I love it because of that. 
That doesn't mean those other things aren't true. But it means that our experience of the Spirit will inform us of spiritual things and heavenly things. We hold them close to our heart because the Spirit Himself has done that for us. No one has ascended into heaven except He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Yeah, Jesus again says, not only is this experience something that not only that he that and okay. not only do him and his followers know this experientially, not only is it something revealed by the Holy Spirit, but it's something that Jesus specifically can testify to. Because not only is he of heaven, but he's of earth as well. No one has gone up to heaven to fetch the message there. No one has gone up to heaven to look at heavenly things and bring a report. But Christ who was there has come. He is able to reveal heavenly things because he is the one from heaven who has come down to earth. In his condescension from God to man, he has become one of us to share with us the true spiritual reality of how things are. What true eternal life is, what truly the kingdom of God is. He is a sole authority above authorities. He can speak as no other has ever spoken because not only is a witness to these things, he is architect of these things. He is able to speak authoritatively on what eternal life is and how the Spirit moves. Because he is the one from heaven. And he is the one who has come down. This is another truth that we hold close. And it's something we've really looked at in John chapter 1. The condescension of the Son of God. How he stepped out of heaven, how he left his throne behind him, he came down as he lived among us. To show eternal life, to preach the kingdom of God as it had. To point people to that kingdom by his life and by his message and ultimately by his death on the cross. Because what our, our last verse tells us here, or last few verses, is it's not just his message, it's not just his testimony that says, it's not just his pointing to the kingdom that leads people there, but he himself is the doorway. He himself is the gate. He himself is the entrance to that kingdom. But just as Moses lifted up the blood serpent in the desert, I'm sorry, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that the leaves in him may have eternal life. You know, I'm sure you know that story, maybe you don't. Uh, of Moses and the bronze serpent. I'll tell you very quickly. The Israelites, as they do, moaned and groaned in the desert, in the wilderness. You know, it's not a new story for them. It's what they did all the time. In fact, I'll read it to you. Um, from Mount Hor, they said, ah, by the way, we read, see, we were on the land of Eden. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Father, the worthless food they loathe is manna that God allowed to grow on the ground so they could eat. But it appeared miraculously every day for them. And that's the food they got tired of. I'm just putting it into perspective for you. Uh, and the people came to Moses and said, okay. When the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that you take away the serpents from us. Moses prayed for the people. Oh, no, I've lost my face entirely. 
promoters, <coughs> praying for the people. And the Lord said, sorry, I'm not good with technology, apparently. Uh, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fire shirt and turn on the pole, and everyone in the question when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and turned on a pole, and the serpent bit anyone. He would look at the bronze serpent and live. So Jesus says he's just like that bronze serpent. He needs to be lifted up. And when he is lifted up, all those who see him, all those who look at him, who believe in him, will receive eternal life. Now the, the parallel story are, are obvious that a sinful people, a broken people, a people who deserve death, like the people of Israel did. And God gave them death. He gave them a punishment worthy of their sin in the terms of the fiery serpents. And a people who is under the wrath and condemnation of God would look upon the Son of God lifted up. Well, they too can live. They too can receive eternal life. The way of salvation, the way into the kingdom, the way the Spirit of God works, the way the Spirit opens eyes is that they might look at Christ. They might look at Him on the cross, because that is the reference of being lifted up here. It's not just being lifted high amongst people, He is referencing His death. The way He will be lifted up on the pole is to be nailed on it, hands and feet, to be displayed and humiliated, crucified and killed. And there's the way of salvation. The way the Spirit works in our hearts is that if we can look at Christ, see our sin, acknowledge and believe in Him, well, we have eternal life. The two go hand in hand. The Spirit will always awaken hearts to see Jesus. If you can believe in Him and put your trust and faith in Him, that means the Spirit has already opened your eyes has come to indwell you, has made you born again, you have been baptized with him. Whatever phrase you want to use, you are saved. You are able to see Jesus, confess your sin, repent of it, and follow him. For such is the way of salvation. Let me summarize very quickly what I've been trying to say. And this is obviously a little message, because we're going to continue next week and next we will add on to this uh, by looking at obviously the famous verse John 3.16 which will help you get in other aspects of salvation. But for this aspect is the Spirit alone who works. He opens eyes to see Christ. And those who see Christ, who have experienced Him and put their faith in Him, they testify with the Spirit that the Spirit's working has happened. That they were sinners and that they are saved by grace and no other way. To cling to anything else that would rob God of His glory, to say in any way that I contributed to my salvation, would be a front to the Spirit of God. To say I earned it in any way, or my choice is what counts, to cling to anything but Christ, would be to misunderstand the Gospel and misunderstand the Spirit's work in our hearts and lives. This is what he's trying to teach Nicodemus. He's trying to show him the truth of all of this. That it is from the hand of God, and it's from the Spirit Himself. That our faith and our belief, though we exercise it, is a fruit of the Spirit's work in our hearts. It is, we believe because He has opened our eyes 
He can see Jesus lifted up and so we can be saved by his sacrifice. It's such an important thing that we believe in. Like I said, we, we celebrate the Reformation and not just because, you know, it's a cool story, but because we recaptured these truths. We were stuck in a circle with a we the world was stuck in a circle where you could buy salvation. Where you could earn it by doing various different things. That if you showed up to church, you could get grace. Or if you had part of the communion table, you could get a bit of grace and some forgiveness of sins. But if I had a little bruise on the back, you could come and confess your sins, and I could absolve them for you. Not that I can do that. Or any man can do that. But we were stuck in a system that taught that, that believed that, that robbed people of the glory and wonder of God by placing salvation in our area. Saying we could earn it, we can do it, we can get there in some way. The Bible and Jesus says no. There's only one way. There's the Spirit of God's work in our hearts and our lives. It's by faith alone. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So all glory is to God, all glory is to the Spirit, and all glory is to Christ for his sacrifice on the cross. These things are important for us to hold together, because if we stray from them, we stray into error. And we cannot afford to get eternal life and salvation wrong. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for how it teaches us. But most importantly, Lord, we thank you for your Son, Lord, and his sacrifice on the cross. And we pray, Lord, that this word would work continually in all our hearts, Lord, to make him grace, to lift him up before us. But as we live our lives, Lord, as we seek to honor you in all things, that you would make us more like him. We also thank you, Lord, for your great salvation, for fully of your spirit and only from you. And we glory in you alone, Lord, and we lay the glory alone at your feet. Lord, and ask, Lord, that you would work continually as we do. We praise you, Lord, we thank you, and we give you honor. We give you your name. Amen.